welcome you to the Concussion Recovery Guide podcast. As we prepare to launch and bring you this program and connect with you, I thought I'd take a moment just to introduce myself and tell you a little bit about me. My name is Frances. I am 42 years old and a mother of five. I'm an author, a researcher, and a health consultant. I am the CEO of Keys to Eating and Keys to Concussions. And my focus in research is connecting diet to physical, emotional, and neurological health with an emphasis on the gut-brain access. It is through this research that I had created the Complete Concussion Recovery Guide. It was created for a personal reason for my son who is now 15 and currently has suffered three concussions to date, one of them being severe and the reason for the creation of this recovery guide. I'm going to take you to an excerpt out of the book where I share the story and what a little bit of our journey was like after his concussion. My son's story. I feel so dumb. I don't know what's wrong with me. These are the words my son told me after suffering from his first concussion unbeknownst to me. It was one stereotypical afternoon and my son came bouncing down the stairs as any normal active boy might do. Then all of a sudden I heard an awful sound, banging, thumping, then an outburst of screams from my son. His younger sister came running, saying, Mommy, brother fell down the stairs and is laying on the floor. I went hurriedly around the corner to help him up off the wood floor. Staggering, I helped him to the couch and assessed the injury. At this time, I had no first-hand experience with concussions, so I performed all of the typical and very cliche concussion tests. Looking back on my ignorance at this time is very humbling to say the least. I looked at his pupils with a light and asked him to follow my fingers with his eyes. He didn't pass out or vomit, so I thought we were in the clear. That, my friends, was it. The extent of my concussion screening and apparent my education on the subject. I had him lay back on the couch and ice his head. He laid there for all about 10 minutes before his friends came ringing the doorbell requesting him to come outside and play soccer. I asked him how he was feeling, and with no visible marks, this active nine-year-old boy begged to go outside and play soccer with his friends. Naturally, I thought he must be okay, and I released him to his free will. After a persistent headache, the following day, I took him in for a CAT scan evaluation. The CAT scan result came back normal, and it was not ruled a concussion at the time. We were told just to go home, take it easy, and let him rest. It wasn't until three days later when the memory loss was apparent and we realized the severity of the concussion. Things quickly got worse. Headaches, memory loss, lethargy, depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, and even seizures. It was the height of the hockey playoffs, which he had followed religiously with his father. He knew every player by name. However, all of that knowledge had suddenly disappeared. We realized something was wrong when he could not follow a conversation and repeatedly would begin speaking to only say, never mind. He literally was at a loss for words. He repeatedly asked for the time and had a perplexed look fixed on his face when we would engage him in conversation. Anxiety began to set in as he drew more and more blanks and realized he couldn't remember people or events that we could. I feel dumb, he said. He could no longer complete his math homework. He forgot all of the multiplication facts he had just recently mastered. Since in my son's case, 
We were unaware that he had suffered from a concussion. We did not follow any proper concussion protocol steps to protect him from further neurological strain. And post-concussive syndrome soon became his reality. Severe migraines and vertigo lasted for the first months. While sleep disturbances became more evident and emotionally he was not himself. He was placed on homebound school programs since he could perform only minimal tasks while symptoms persisted. However, to my surprise, the school did not have a concussion plan ready to implement. I was left to educate his educators on his condition even though I was still learning. The school believed that since outwardly he appeared to be fine, they projected an attitude of disbelief of his expressed continued symptoms. Due to the nature of concussion and post-concussion syndrome, the majority of the battle was an inner struggle with no outside visible marks. Because of this, he was often accused of milking it or making things up. I believe this was partly due to the lack of information, education, and complexity of the subject. Unfortunately, many people, including myself, did not understand this aftermath of a concussion, and it was a long, difficult journey. After initially being cleared from his concussion, the dizziness, ringing in his ears, tinnitus, and headaches became so severe they would become completely debilitating at times. It was all he could do to sit up, and the light sensitivity was so extreme that he just wanted to lay in a dark room. It was heartbreaking for me to see him like this, and I was forced to watch as he became more and more dejected, just wanting to return to his normal self. After time went by with these continued symptoms, his neurologist and concussion specialist suggested he be seen. We made a two-hour commute and he was admitted into the hospital for concussion evaluation and treatment. I remember we both felt so relieved, expecting to find this amazing cure that would return him to his physically active boy that he used to be. In efforts to reduce his headaches, the doctors administered an anti-epileptic drug called Depakote or valproic acid via IV. Depakote is a common drug used to treat migraines, seizures, and mood disorders in children and adults. Initially, I wasn't concerned and trusted the doctors completely. After all, up to this point, it had been all misery. I just wanted him to have some relief. After the first hour of receiving the drug, he began to say that he was having a difficult time moving his legs. I thought maybe he just needed to stretch and move around a bit. He hung his legs over the side of the bed struggling and stood up very slowly. He looked as though he was balancing on wobbly stilts. I asked him if he was okay, and he said his legs felt like they were too small for his body. I thought that was odd, and we contacted the nurse to discuss this with the doctor. They didn't seem concerned and continued to administer the Depakote via IV. At about two and a half hours into the treatment, he got up and tried to use the bathroom, but his legs buckled underneath him and he reached out to the ivy pole to catch himself. I offered my assistance, but he assertively told me he could do it himself. His frustration yet persistence was very evident, so I stepped back. He was not used to having to depend on so much help and did not like it at all. He proceeded to the bathroom, holding onto the pole, dragging his legs across the floor. I alerted the nurse again regarding the increase in the lack of mobility in his legs, but they continued the Depakote drip without concern. After six hours of treatment, he lost complete mobility in his legs and couldn't even stand up, stand by himself. 
After six hours of treatment, he lost complete mobility in his legs and couldn't even stand up by himself. His descriptions of feeling was consistent, and he said that he felt like he had little legs and they couldn't hold his body up. I was done at this point and had the nurses call his neurologist to discontinue the treatment. The neurologist insisted to me this was not the result of the drugs as he had not come across such a reaction before. As any mama bear might do, I completed research throughout the night on this drug and came across a girl my son's age who had a similar drunken-like response, as it was explained, when given the same dose of Depakote through an IV. The next morning, he still had no mobility in his legs, and his emotional state was declining rapidly. And after enough persistence, they granted me my wish and took him off the Depakote. It was unfortunate, though, that it was not done without a degree of condescending treatment. Almost to the minute of the initial dosage, within six hours of stopping this medication, he could walk again. During this time, not only did he lose the use of his legs, but he also experienced negative psychological effects from the drug and became very depressed and anxious. After this situation, I saw the frustration and sadness in my son's eyes. He wasn't getting better. His teachers did not believe him. The medicine the doctors gave him didn't work and even they questioned the validity of his loss of mobility. I seemed to be the only one who knew him and was with him around the clock to notice the truth. When he asked me what we were going to do, I could not let him down, and there was no way I was going to tell him that we were out of options. I knew that I must find another option. It was at this place in our concussion journey that the complete concussion protocol was created. My son's relationships with concussions would not end with one. Partly due to the severity of the initial concussion, research shows that once you receive a concussion, your chances of getting another one increases up to three times, and it takes much less of a severe hit to the head each time. He suffered another concussion in 2015 at school when a classmate playfully pulled his chair out from underneath him, sending him falling back, hitting his head on a desk. The third concussion occurred in 2016 by what was considered a mild blow to the head during football practice. Both times, the familiar feeling of concussion filled his head, and he was immediately evaluated, and this time, the proper steps in our concussion protocol began. Never again would I make the same mistake and be caught off guard by a concussion. I was in control of the situation and ready to help my son. I will never forget that feeling of helplessness. No price can be placed on being prepared once a concussion takes place. It was through these experiences that I met other individuals also suffering from the effects of concussions, and I realized there was a lack of adequate information and direction for those needing answers, like myself, after my son's first concussion. I also realized how many people were so unaware of the debilitating effects that concussions and TBIs could bring. The most shocking discovery for me was when I learned of concussion's silent partner, this mysterious secondary injury that secretly takes place after the initial injury. It was this reason that I sought to create the concussion protocol. As I began to implement the information I had learned and researched in my own son's life, I experienced bittersweet emotions. I was elated and grateful to have the answers and a plan for my son, while at the same time I was angry that I could not find this information in its totality after his initial concussion. It was during that epiphany that I realized the information I used to help my son needed to be documented and put to print for others out there struggling 
and searching for solutions and answers. I felt compelled to share what I had found and no one else was talking about it, at least in and around my circle. The information in this book is a composition of scientific and medical research, case studies, and real-life applications brought together over a span of five years. I am so excited to bring this information to you and to the public. Stay tuned, and in the future podcast, during this pre-launch, I will explain to you more about the details in the Concussion Recovery Guide, how I came to some of these conclusions, and a little bit more on this infamous invisible secondary injury that follows a concussion, the concussion silent partner. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.